The story of Jesus has been told, retold, and retold again for centuries. Over the past 200 years or so, a quest for the historical Jesus has been launched, with archaeologists, theologians, and historians combing records and ruins for evidence of the life and teachings of Jesus. At the same time, though, another quest was launched, which has been called the quest for the fictional Jesus. Now, it's not a quest to disprove the existence of Jesus or the historical accounts of his life. The quest for the fictional Jesus consists of a new genre of writing about Jesus, Jesus novels, which have been used to explore the life of the Galilean prophet. Such works are as varied as their authors are. The authors often employ a variety of literary strategies and promote differing theological perspectives. One scholar who studied the genre says such works offer modern authors and readers an opportunity to pose new questions or to gain new insights from our ancient counterparts. I'm joined today by James Goldberg, and he's the author of one such Jesus novel, for lack of a better term. He's an author, actor, and a professor of composition and creative writing here at Brigham Young University. Thanks for taking the time to join me on the Maxwell Institute podcast, James. Welcome. Uh, first, I'd like you to just take a moment here to talk a little bit about your background. Yeah, um, well, I grew up LDS. Uh, my dad's dad was Jewish, and so I grew up LDS with regular phone calls reminding us how many more Jews had won Nobel Prizes than the, <laughs> you know, than zero Mormons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Are we also, still at zero? No, no, there's a, an economist now, okay. I think. Um, <laughs> but uh, also grew up with a couple of Jewish holidays that we just continued to celebrate because they're, they're compatible uh, with beliefs in that hybrid culture. My um, mom's dad grew up Sikh, uh, which is a North Indian religion. I think actually the the fifth largest religion in the world, if you count Christianity as one, is Sikhism. Um, he converted to Mormonism in the in the 1950s, but really, you know, we've continued a lot of that that Sikh heritage. Was he here in the United States? In the family, uh, he grew up in pre-partition India. Um, and then came to the United States in the 50s and joined the church, yeah. Cool. And then how did you get into writing? How did I get into writing? Um, <laughs> big question, but yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up, I, I've got big extended families on most sides. And I grew up with a family culture of just lots of, of storytelling, you know, storytelling kitchen kind of culture. And so I was always, always around it. My dad's a very good storyteller. My mom's a good storyteller who did some writing. Um, I don't remember exactly when I decided that's what I was going to do. I got interested in theater in high school and the sort of multifaceted way of interacting with an audience. And I think very quickly within theater sort of gravitated toward new theater and writing and, and then from theater out into other genres. So the five books of Jesus, this is a book that you uh, recently published and you self-published this one. Um, it's kind of a creative adaptation or a rewriting of the New Testament Gospels into a, a narrative form. Um, in your introduction, you say that the Gospels are at odds with modern readers' expectations for specificity and consistency. So expand on that a little bit. Yeah, uh, well, the first thing, <laughs> a modern novel, one of the strengths of the modern novel as opposed to a film or something is that it gets you in character's perspective, right, and tells you everything People are thinking and feeling. We're really interested in the inner life of characters now. The Bible doesn't care, right? Um, yeah. I actually had a, a conversation a while ago about what does the Bible say about being gay? And I said, nothing. Because the interior, when we say being gay now, we mean an interior experience. Right. The Bible talks primarily about Actions. the exterior. Yeah. 
Um, and in a different context. Anyway, uh, so yeah, in terms of specificity, a lot of that is the, the Bible is not necessarily as involved in details of people's inner emotional lives. Um, another thing in terms readers of... Readers expect that in their books. Now, readers right? so today they, expect right, that. So they go to the New Testament and that's yeah, not there. And it's not it's, there. Yeah. Um, consistency, <laughs> most of us, I think what we think is written in the Gospels is a mix of what's actually in the Gospels, oral tradition, visual art. And uh, I noticed this as I started studying for this book. We forget the variations. We've got four different Gospels. Within a Gospels, there's a lot of variation. Um, and we sort of tend to project whatever broad notions we have onto the whole text. And so we resist sometimes what the Gospel is saying uh, because we have a broader idea out. of right. how it's supposed to be. Right. So when you decided to write this book, how did that come up? How did this project begin then? It's, it, to um, me, it's, <laughs> you know, it's... It, Pretty, it would be pretty daunting to take on yeah. <laughs> scripture that way. Yeah, well, uh, number one, it's scripture. Number two, it is the most told story in Western tradition, with the possible exception of Adam and Eve, right. uh, which is quite widely told. But but yeah, it's it's pretty thoroughly told. The, the genesis for me was uh, I was brand new in a ward and was asked to give a fifth Sunday lesson about the life of Christ. The bishop and his counselor just say, you know, we, we really, we'd like you to do this. We think there's something you can do with it. And I thought, how do you do the life of Christ yeah. in an hour, right? <laughs> and you can't. Um, and so I ended up doing a lesson about bringing greater imagination to your study of the Gospels and saying, okay, when you read a passage, how is it different if you stop and think, what might people at the time have been thinking? What is this passage like if you don't know how it's going to end yet? Right? Because a lot of times we know how it ends, we yeah. read too quickly, and we miss that sense of surprise that a, a lot of Jesus is built on one way people would have thought of things and flipping that. Right. Uh, if we don't take time to realize the first, we don't, we miss the power of the Gospels. So, I, yeah, I'd done this teaching about how could you approach the Gospels differently, studying individually. And then, yeah, I just got interested in, okay, how could I do this in storytelling in a way that that gives readers a sense of that surprise? Right. Um, I was also really interested in how a lot of the stories in the Gospels depend some on that world and the assumptions of that world that are gone to us. And how could I help take this power of the modern novel, which is point of view, and give you a point of view that is built in the assumptions of that time period as best I could approximate right. them. What kind of sources did you use? Because that seems, I mentioned the quest for the historical Jesus and the quest for the fictional Jesus, and it seems they can't be completely separate, at least in your project, yeah. then, if you're also trying to incorporate some of the cultural and societal things that, that would have informed the New Testament then. So what did you use to, to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, maybe one thing... To clarify, sometimes quest for historical Jesus is to try to separate... Well, I think the core is try to separate Jesus from the Gospels, right? Uh, so different people have said, can the tools of modern inquiry give us some sense of which part of the Gospels are matters of later belief and which are original Jesus? I have about zero interest in right. that. Right. And there's, um, there's also the, the newer 
quest for the yeah. struggle of Jesus, which is this project of fleshing out the world of, of Jesus yes. and the world and the so New Testament. That that side I'm interested in. So I really was interested in so you didn't pay who's attention. the Jesus of the Gospels. Right. And that meant that most of what I was doing was scholarship based on individual scriptural passages, right? So just take, you know, academic library, you've got, uh, there's actually a search engine where you can search by reference and get tons of scholarship okay. to this passage. So the bulk of what, you know, I did some general background research. I had a fair amount of general background knowledge. Um, as much as text, having a grandfather who grew up in a rural, you know, thoroughly rural pre-industrial setting, there's a lot about the Bible he understands very intuitively that's not natural to readers right. now because he grew up in a similar world. Right. Um, but no, most of my research was passage by passage of the Gospels, looking at a variety of scholarly perspectives on what might right. be and happening. Right, and we should be clear. So I, I like that you differentiated your project from the, the old quest for the historical Jesus in that this your retelling of the story wasn't an attempt to narrow the Gospels down to you know, the core facts that, that scholarship yeah. might establish, but rather to use what the evangelists put together as, and, and sort of breathe some new life into that or, or yeah. imaginatively enter into the text to help flesh it out into a story that can surprise us again as we've become yeah. familiar with, with yeah. the New so Testament. So the way you could think of this is, how do I get a modern reader to experience something like an early reader would have experienced with the Gospels, right? right? Somebody who had all that other equipment they might have received the Gospels in a very different way than we do. Right. And you went with the five books of Jesus. And that's it's interesting because there are, there are four Gospels. Is there mm-hmm. significance to the number five or is that just... Yes. Um, so one of the key things that I see in the Gospels is that all of them are built around the Hebrew Bible. I, I worked for the Joseph Smith Papers Project for a while. And one of the things that I loved most doing there were requests about sort of the biblicism of the early saints. Look, these people, the Bible were their stories, even in the 1830s. That's how they made meaning out of everything. And the number of biblical allusions in casual conversation from that period is incredible. The Gospels are the same way. They're very carefully crafted around these structures from the scriptures they already had. So the five books of Moses were sort of the most sacred of the Hebrew scriptures. My retelling is structured around five books where book one has seven chapters. It's parallel to uh, Genesis. The title is Bereshit, which is the Hebrew uh, for that first book. Um, And in the same way, yeah, the five books are the five books of Moses telling the story of Jesus. Okay. One of the things you say in the introduction is a great quote. That's it's that's a fairly complex explanation, but in the introduction, your literary sensibility puts it in a really interesting way. You say that the the New Testament Gospels are like boats that sail on the deep sea of the Hebrew Bible. So if you're only looking at the surface of the water, you're you're missing out on what's you know what's below that surface, and, yeah. and the Gospels are informed by the Hebrew Scriptures, yeah. just deeply informed by them. Yeah. And in a way, I think, you know, you can still ride the boat <laughs> yeah. without all of it. But this, the way these structures really work, that the ocean holds up a boat, right? And in the same way, really, the structures of the Hebrew Bible are what are holding up the essential claims in the Gospels. Right, and... There's another thing that you do. You don't you don't just tap into the Hebrew scriptures, but you also draw on, on Talmudic sages and, and Urdu poets. Um, what what led you to to that decision, and, and how did you go about doing that? Well, the Talmud uh, 
for listeners who who haven't worked with the Talmud at all before, basically after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was in 70 AD, um, Judaism, the the remaining mainstream of the Jewish community put most of its energy into the study of the scriptural texts, sort of as a portable uh, mode of worship. And so you had this vast body of commentary that's the Talmud. And part of it's about the Bible. Part of it was the oral tradition of what happened in the temple. Uh, and they wrote down what they could. Well, first they told what they could, and later they wrote down. And then you have layers and layers of commentary. Um, we don't have a lot of written sources about Hebrew thought, Jew- Jewish thought and life at Jesus' time. Uh the Talmud is one of our most exhaustive sources. It was written down a few centuries later, depending on which part you're talking about. But in some cases, talks back to what was going on in that period. So the Talmud was a valuable source for me for what what might have been the debates within Jewish law mm-hmm. that Jesus is speaking to. How does he interact with his contemporaries? So Talmudic sources were very important that way. Uh, the Urdu poetry is a more literary choice, but... So a lot of the works in the Urdu poetic tradition, you came from cultures where you could not come right out and say what you meant. Uh, that was certainly true uh, in sort of conservative Islamic societies. That Well, <laughs> in India and Pakistan, you had a variety of, yeah. I wouldn't call them all conservative Islamic <laughs> societies. But, you know, y- you had to tread carefully. And then, again, under the British, uh, the poetic tradition, you would talk about love and your beloved was the revolution, right? right. Uh, and so you'd use one set of imagery to mean another set of things. And it really opened up Jesus' parables to me to say, uh, Jesus specifically says, we tend to, to, to assume today that Jesus taught in parables because people understood. And these were simple, concrete ways, and it was a way to communicate more effectively. It's an effective rhetorical teaching strategy or something. What the Gospels say about the parables is Jesus taught in parables so people would not understand unless they had ears to hear, unless they were really listening. Um, And that's because, I think, you had a culture where you couldn't just come out and say anything. And so he had to conceal and reveal certain things simultaneously. And so sometimes I borrow from this poetry that's designed to conceal and reveal in describing this movement that has to conceal and reveal its core. I think part of the plot, as you lay it out, then revolves around that teaching style in that there are people that come to follow Jesus or that listen to him for a time that that have ears to hear maybe something that he didn't intend. And so some people leave. There are Simon's, Simon's friends, for example, that that are more zealots and yeah. that they interpret Jesus' parables in a certain way and someone else takes it another way. So is that is that kind of... Yeah, maybe that's one thing. And I, I mean, to go back, there's... Hmm. Because <laughs> you didn't... Rather than just saying, here's this cool thing Jesus was doing, you show that there are consequences that yeah. reach beyond what Jesus, even Jesus himself could control That uh, well, as a result of using that teaching strategy. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. So part of it is the teaching strategy. Part of it is what Jesus does mean. Um, forgiveness of sins sounds wonderful, right? And it's the core of Christianity. <laughs> if someone walks up and say they can forgive sins, that's sort of a frightening prospect, right? What are they trying to achieve? What yeah. sort of sins are they planning to forgive, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, 
are they planning to get followers to commit sins? Yeah. Which the, and and plus, who um, told you you could do that? Who right? told you you could do that? Blasphemy there's that conventional. There's the blasphemy. There's also other concerns. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Ra, Ross Duhat. Uh, I read his. So he's a largely a political and social thinker, but coming from a contemporary Catholic, uh, interested in social capital and those things. Anyway, he wrote a review of Reza Aslan's book Zealot uh, that's in the this, new book. very much in the Zealots, the Jesus quest of historical a, Jesus, right? right? And Jesus Aslan is a revolutionary, to, yeah. And that sort of so thing. he's trying to strip away layers of the gospel to find right. something else. One thing that Duhat said that I found really interesting about the book is, look. Christianity comes from a complex figure in Jesus who is compassionate but also demanding, who is zealous and pacifistic, both, right? Um, So you've got this multiplicity of teachings within Jesus as the Gospels present him. Maybe one thing that I do is he's teaching and there's this guardedness is, yeah, that multiplicity can be offensive as well as appealing. Right. Um, with the Urdu poets, there's. I just wanted to ask you about one specific example. There's an epigraph that you include toward the end of the book, just before the scene where Jesus betrays Jesus with a kiss. And this is an epigraph. Judas betrays Jesus. Yeah. Did I say Jesus? You said betrays? Jesus betrays Jesus. Yes. Well, that's my uh, <laughs> my rewriting of the gospel, I guess, in my version. No, but it, there's a quote from Galib. Is that how you say mm-hmm. it? Yeah, Galib. Galib, a Persian poet and a mystic who, who sort of straddled the Hindi and Islamic traditions in his. In his time, from what I gathered, and he died in about 1869, so this is uh, more relatively recent uh, than the Gospels are. But the quote you include right before the betrayal says, I am like a candle that has gone out on the grave of a poor man. Uh, And I want to know what you were drawing out of that. Yeah, maybe to talk about Galb. Galb was uh, in the court at at Delhi, um, as in New Delhi, but there was no new yet. and he lived through the time when the, there was a revolt against early British influence there to reestablish the, the the Mughal court still existed, but to give them political power. And uh, the British just killed everybody. <laughs> After that revolt, Delhi, they just hung people everywhere, sacked the city. Um, absolute desolation. And he sort of speaks to that desolation. And this image to me... I'm a candle that's gone out on the grave of a poor man. It just seemed so desolate. And and in Urdu, actually, the the candle going out is the same word as, as someone falling silent, right? Hmm. The tongue's gone out. The tongue of flame. We have the same okay. in English. Um, so this is between, as we move from Gethsemane into the crucifixion, in a lot of fictional portrayals of Jesus, if you think of the Passion of the Christ or something, that's rising climactic action. In the five books of Jesus, in some ways, there's a sense of falling action and desolation as the apostles feel everything spinning out of control from their perspective. Jesus has tried to tell them what's happening, but they, the, the Gospels tell us they didn't understand. And so I take the Gospels seriously and say, here are people who don't understand what's happening, and it seems like everything is falling out of control. And so so I took that. The other thing I like, the the second half of that couplet is the uh, quote at the very beginning of the book. Uh, so Golub says, I'm like a candle that has fallen silent on the grave of a poor man, that has gone out on the grave of a poor man. In my silence are ten thousands of anguish-soaked desires. 
Um, and I guess, I don't know, there's that second half having an image of Jesus taking things upon him, that Gethsemane image, and then the exhaustion. I'm trying to show the exhaustion mm. after this core moment of atonement mm. in Gethsemane. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Um, I want to I want to have you read an excerpt here. This is actually from the beginning of the book. Um, and it starts out here... Uh, I, I enjoyed how the book was written in, in the present tense. I'm not sure okay. what the literary term for that is, but everything seems live. It seems present. You're, you're narrating it as it happens. And you open the book with a striking description of a prophet uh, absconding off to the desert. So I want to have you read that section. This is from the beginning of the book. At the very beginning. It starts in the desert. In the beginning of the world, says Genesis, the whole earth was a void, and the Spirit of God swept over it. This desert out on the banks of the Jordan is no void. Even in the night the camels moan and the crickets chirp. But when it does get quiet, some say you can still feel the Spirit of God sweep by, breathe it deep down into your chest. A long time ago, the prophet Amos looked out past his orchards and his flocks west of the river to the desert in the east and said, There are days coming. Yes, the vision must have fallen on him the way the sunset can make the desert suddenly cold. There are days coming, says the Lord God, when I'll send a famine in the land. Not a hunger for bread or a thirst for water, but for words of the Lord and the ground itself will grow parched and cracked with your deafness and my absence. There are days coming, said the prophet, when men will wander from sea to sea, from the north to the east. They'll run back and forth looking for a word from me, but they won't find it. It'll be too dry, he said. So John doesn't wander from sea to sea. John doesn't run this way or that. He walks straight into the river until it covers his head, then out the other side where the dust gets mixed in his beard. He listens to the camel's moan and the cricket's chirp, and then to the silence. The dead prophet Amos smiles. It starts to rain. That's James Goldberg reading a selection from his book, The Five Books of Jesus. Um, So you come from a Mormon background, and I want to talk a little bit about how that might have informed the book. Mormons haven't been shy about challenging the supremacy of the Bible. We have an article of faith that says that it's, it's as far as it's translated correctly, we accept it as scripture. We've also added additional scripture to the canon. But at the same time, the, the church has also encouraged at least English-speaking members to stick to the King James Version of the Bible. Um, now, there are newer translations that would help modern readers understand the Bible a little bit better. I've, I've benefited from reading different translations and so there's sort of this tension between recognizing limitations with the Bible and with the translation, but also adhering to a certain version of the text. And and you've taken that text and, and reworked it uh, yourself, so obviously it's quite different from the, the King James Version. Did any of these tensions affect the way that you went about putting the book together? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think the reason we use the King James Version is almost Talmudic. <laughs> In the sense that I don't know that we use King James because it's any better than another translation, but it's a common reference point to have discussions across generations. Uh, Previous Mormon commentators, prophets especially, 
when we have prophets and apostles who've used the language of King James, been inspired by that, and and based their commentary on that, we want to go back to that rather than to another uh, version that maybe misses this particular nuance in the King James that it doesn't have. I mean, to me, to me, a Protest, a more Protestant view of Scripture is that Scripture is the standard and it dictates the way religion should be carried out. That's a conventional sort of Martin Luther Protestant. Uh, I would see a Mormon view of Scripture as treating Scripture more like a, a Urim and Thummim, right? Scripture is, it, it's past revelation that, that can be binding in certain circumstances that can help you make sense of life, but as much as anything, it's that thing you go to to seek revelation. Um, yeah, so I think I think we're a little more flexible. What did I do with... I, yeah, so you kind of counter I, that though, because and and I think that's one of the strengths of the book is when I when I read scriptures, when I come across a, a quoted scripture in the ensign or in yeah. some source, I've noticed my eyes tend to gl- just glaze over and I skip past it because uh, oh, it's a scripture, not because I don't like scripture, but because oh, I know this, move yeah, along. There's that, uh, right. So there's a blindness of habit and familiarity. Yes, but with this, um, you, when you reword things. It calls yep. it again fresh to mind, and and in my mind, I can often still hear the cadence of the King James version. Oh, I see where he's where this is coming from, but it it brings it fresh. Yeah, and so yeah, I wanted to do. I mean, King James is based on a certain era. It doesn't work if I'm trying to give a sense of how Hebrew might have felt the people at that time to use what 16th century English, yeah. early 17th century English. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess maybe one thing I, I do want is that feeling of freshness and unfamiliarity. I want you to go back and look again at the Gospels. And maybe it's connected to what I said in the hopes that maybe there will be some... Uh, this is not scripture. This is a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it can help you see with new eyes as you return to scripture after this... And I've had some very interesting conversations with people who say... Yeah, after this book, I just had to go look at the Gospels again. That was again. my first impulse was to and, do that. Uh, and I think you have a richer reading experience of the Gospels, having had the sense of surprise. And sometimes that jarring difference, sometimes with the language I use here and sometimes with the framing. Yeah. It's often, I the context is just slightly different, right? And it's the framing that, that changes, that, that gives a new sense of what this might mean. Yeah, and and there's plenty more. Now, if I take this back to the New Testament after having read the five books of Jesus, there's plenty more material in the Gospels to, th- oh, to yeah. think through. You weren't able to incorporate everything, no. obviously. By, by no means exhaustive. Was it difficult to make those decisions about about what to what to include and what not, or did it just was it a bit more organic? Did you sit no, there with your New <laughs> Testament open and say, "Okay"? Oh, no, well, not only did I sit there. I mean, the New Testament's fairly large. <laughs> yeah. So I would do things like add a complete list of parables, right? Uh, for I made a decision early on. John has a in matters of event and plot. John differs enough that I did not hold myself accountable to John in any way. Uh, <laughs> I occasionally will draw from something that's in the Gospel of John that was useful to me. Uh, but for the other three Gospels, I had a complete list of, they're called pericopes, mm-hmm. the different, but basically a scene-by-scene scene breakdown of what happens. And I'd look at, okay, which, you know, there were some scenes that in the outline I'd put in, and then it just, in the chapter, I just could not do yeah. that one as well. But, uh, but yeah, I took my structural ideas in terms of how to structure it into these five books and what each what the structure of each book 
I wanted was, plus the raw material and the Gospels, and how could I maybe bring two things together that weren't in conversation before. Um, I also had my list of what are the Old Testament, so to speak, uh, passages that I want to use, right? Yeah, it seemed that you used, you know, you used quite a, quite a bit of the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess it's a proportion, not that much, but, uh, but more than, but I, there, I say more than I would expect. I mean, it, it rem, it's a reminder that there is a lot more of the yeah. Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament, or at least that as a background to the New Testament than, yeah. than, than we I mean, expect. just in the passage we've read, what have I got? I've got, there's the phrase, Mark starts with the beginning of the gospel, right? So it starts in the desert. Um, where I'm playing very directly with that, uh-huh. you know, sort of directly translating, yeah. even if it's just those few words, Mark. I've also got Amos. Um, the silence there is actually one thing you miss in the King James Bible. Uh, when Elijah's on the mountain, in uh, in the King James English, there's the, what, it's... The still small voice? The still small yeah. voice is the final. There's the yeah, fire and, and the, the earthquake yeah. and the wind, uh, and then a still small voice. Uh, many scholars feel the Hebrew is closer to a silence. right. You know, and so I've got that same moment where John here is hearing this, this, and then silence because the Gospels tell us John is Elijah. So I told John stories in the same ways that people tell Elijah stories, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. It seems like you incorporate some information from the Book of Mormon. You have Jesus giving his apostles or his disciples particular instructions. In the New Testament, it seems as though Jesus is speaking generally. The Book of Mormon has Jesus take his disciples away from the crowd and talk to them that way. D- did you consciously do that, or no? I did not yeah. consciously do that. So the, yeah, so, so the, that that's an interesting question. Whether there's you ended up doing that. So yeah. I, I wonder if that's <laughs> like a subconscious thing from your Mormonism, or if you just thought yeah. this is an interesting way to incorporate these sayings of Jesus. Uh, in a similar way to what the Book of Mormon has yeah, Jesus I've got to. a couple passages that I can think of. Where There's that one at the very beginning of the second uh, book where part of what I wanted as a writer was to individuate the apostles a bit. And how do I do that? I took different sayings where each one has some interaction with the name of the apostle. Yeah. Right? Is a play on the name or a play on something we know about. Sons of Thunder was really funny. Apostle. Oh. It was funny. You had the mother of... Was it James and John of the yes. Sons of Thunder? And she was uh, getting on Jesus' case a little bit, or at least... Um, yes, well, she... So, she was strong so the story is there's, there are problems in Capernaum. Uh, and she comes and tells Jesus, you need to come and fix this, right? Yeah. Come back to Capernaum yeah. and do this. And, and yeah, in my telling, the name Sons of Thunder is not necessarily directly about James and John. It, yeah. He says, lead the way, you Sons of Thunder. Your mother predicts a storm. Yeah, that was great. Uh, yeah. yeah, part of that is... There are there are women in the Gospels. Many of them, we don't have a lot of information, right? Yeah. There's the reference. And my guess would be to some of the earliest readers, there was probably an oral tradition of what these women meant. And people go, oh, yes, they were with him, right? Yeah. Uh, and we don't have that now. So sometimes... You expand a little bit. I on do think Mary to, and Martha prophesying at one point. Yeah, yeah, based on the Old Testament... Yeah. Yeah, there's an Old Testament story I'm lining yeah. up with that, yeah. and that was very convenient. Uh, but yeah, so I I did use the if there's if there's a woman's name I used it with the exception of I you've got multiple Marys who some people treat as the same Mary and yeah. and I I did a composite Mary yeah. there. Um, 
But yeah, every every unique name in the Gospels I use. And some people say that Mary was a prostitute, that one of the Marys was a prostitute, and you didn't use that element, right? I, yeah, I didn't yeah. use that element. That some people, well, it's, it's another one of those version things where you have in one Gospel, and it's been long enough, I don't remember which is which, um, but in one Gospel you have this sinful woman washing the yeah. feet of Jesus, and another you have... I believe Mary and Martha mm-hmm. doing it. And so some people combine those two, which is reasonable. Yeah. Uh, and therefore identify Mary, Mary with, the, with the sinful woman. Yeah. Um, I didn't end up doing that because I wanted to do other things with Mary. Right. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was, and we touched on this briefly just uh, at, the, at the beginning, was the issue of harmonization. So within the Mormon tradition, we have James E. Talmadge's book, Jesus the Christ, which it's been hugely influential. It, it takes the, the New Testament and, and takes the pericopes, puts them in a harmonized order, um, and tells this narrative story of, of Jesus. Everything's in a timeline. Everything's situated that way. And your book obviously does a little bit of that as well. Um, but, you know, more recent New Testament scholars resist that, or at least they, they see problems with, with trying to harmonize yeah. the Gospels that way. So I'm curious as to how you dealt with with that, you were harmonizing, but there's also a resistance to harmonizing, or at least to the way that, that say, a Talmudge harmonized. You don't follow any particular order. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I don't see the Gospels necessarily as... I guess, <laughs> this sounds bad, maybe, but I, I genuinely believe that Jesus Christ was there, that he atoned, that he said many of the things the Gospels to attribute to him, but I, I don't care that much about what is the actual chronology of Jesus' life. It's not Jesus interesting to Or Jesus-similar um, type stuff doesn't, or you're going to color yeah, code color code, this is what likely, more likely by that, him. Yeah. That doesn't interest me as much as what are the Gospels doing, and to me, the organization in most of the Gospels, you know, I think of these people less as disciples of Jesus who were taking journals as he lived as the writers of the Gospels I see them as people who had a wide variety of stories about Jesus and looked to organize them into a way that for an audience where many people were still not even literate could remember them right and so to me a lot of the Gospels have their own structures that are not necessarily grounded in chronology but in shape right Um, and so I tried to do the same thing, right? My, hmm. what, I, what I wanted to do is what's the shape? I give it these, you know, part of it is the five book structure. Um, part of it is my sense of when, when do we have rising and falling action? Um, but that was more interesting to me than what was the actual chronology. I don't think we have enough. And many of the things we say about chronology, I, was Jesus' ministry three years I think that comes from the number of Passovers in the Gospel of John. Uh, in the other ones, there's not necessarily a time period. It could yeah. be could be very quick, right? Um, where where did Jesus' family live when he was born? Matthew has him living in Bethlehem, then going to Egypt, then moving to Galilee later. Uh, Luke puts them in Nazareth and coming down to visit Bethlehem. It's two different versions. Both of them have interesting. I like both birth stories because they look in Matthew uh, Herod is Pharaoh there's the killing of the yeah. firstborn there's this he's telling a story people already know no, in order to right. tell the new story Luke is telling a very different and interesting story um, about sort of the the humility of Jesus and and 
you know, yeah. the, that classical imagery. I, I love both of them. I don't see them as different details of the same chronological right. story. I see them as different versions that give us important insights into the the character of Jesus and the nature of the gospel message. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so you sort of do some harmonizing, but but you resist an overall type of harmonization that tries to account for all yeah, these discrepancies. I'm, I'm not interested in yeah. chronological harmonization. So to give people kind of an idea who haven't read the book some specific things, there's an unusual harmonization tactic you employ that I that I really enjoyed. It's to take a particular paracope and tie it together with a seemingly unrelated paracope. And when you put them side by side, it gives both of them a different uh, emphasis than they than they had separately. So, for an example, the brothers of Jesus are only briefly discussed in the New Testament. Um, you know, and, th- and there are times mm-hmm. when they seem reluctant to follow Jesus, and you, or they're somehow ashamed of him, and you you incorporate that, and you observe that their names of the brothers match the names of the apostles that Jesus calls, and you sort of connect that to Jesus's declaration about, you know, who are my mother and my father and brothers and sisters? You are. He's speaking to the disciples. Yeah. So you kind of use these two seemingly separate things within the New Testament and lay them side by side uh, where Jesus has called a new family when he calls his disciples, but in a way that, that still will call to mind his own family. Yeah. I owe a lot of that to Mark um, because one of the key strategies that scholars who look into literary structure of the Gospels, they noticed in Mark, he interrupts himself quite frequently to tell another story. For instance, the story of the healing of the daughter of Jairus Mm -hmm. is interrupted on the way to healing. There's this story of the woman with the issue of blood. And scholars look at what is Mark trying to say by putting these together, right? And constantly in Mark, he interrupts one story to tell another, and there's almost invariably solid arguments that there's meaning to the combination of those two. And so I got interested in, yeah, how do you lay that? Um, The second book in the five books of Jesus uh, is sort of Jesus is now gathering his movement, right? It's the gathering mm-hmm. of the people. Uh, it's the new Exodus, right? Yeah. The old Exodus was coming out of Egypt. The new Exodus. Well, is let's see. Even the twelve disciples the, represented twelve tribes. Twelve this tribes. Was the gathering yeah. of the twelve tribes. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got this gathering, and yeah, we start out with those those scenes from the Gospels about Jesus' family, um, along with the calling of the twelve, because I think they do speak to each other absolutely. Another one, um, you seem to explain Jesus' frustration with Peter. Peter comes to him and says, you know, you can't die. What's going on here? And Jesus says, you know, get behind me, Satan. Get get away from me, Satan, is how you phrase it. Um, and Jesus implies here that Peter's questioning was like the verbal traps that the scribes were setting for him. So you kind of set that exchange between Jesus and Peter as the sort of exchange Jesus was having with these other people that yeah. that was an adversarial exchange. Yeah. Well, one thing you see in in book one, to move back a little bit from that moment, a lot of times where the Gospels use the Pharisees, <laughs> I use disciples who end up leaving Jesus. Because to me, I, you look at early Mormon history, right? A lot of the opponents yeah. are people with intimate ties to Mormonism. Then they start Either trouble. as former Mormons yeah. or had family members who are Mormons. Right. Um, and I see the same potentially happening. Surely... Uh, if, if people were indifferent to the movement, why would they talk? Some yeah. of these may have been people who were drawn to Jesus. I don't know if that's true, but it's an interesting way to yeah. reread it and maybe give us more, allow us to take seriously the questions of the Pharisees more. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, when Peter comes to Jesus, it's 
in that phrase. I give Jesus, I give Peter a scripture to quote. There's a, a scripture, well-known Jewish scripture in Deuteronomy that says, yeah, I've, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, choose life. Uh, and in Judaism, that's a fundamental commandment. Wait, <laughs> you choose life when you get there. Very few exceptions mm-hmm. to that. Um, and so, yeah, Peter's come with an argument and, and, and I, I think Jesus says in effect in, in my telling, look, I'm, I'm used to being tempted, mm-hmm. but Not it's you. harder from you. And, yeah. and part of that is, uh, is the Pharisees. Part of the illusion, maybe you've got temptations in the day. When Jesus mm-hmm. says Satan, Jesus has been directly tempted yeah. by Satan, right? We have that yeah. story. So one, one thing I wondered as I'm reading along here is how many of these juxtapositions that you created, how many of these insights that you, that you, uh, bring into your book, how many of those came out of your own personal scripture study versus when you were doing this project, all of these elements started coming to the fore. Is this something that you had been doing before with the New Testament or is it new to this particular project? Well, this, I mean, this is the way that I've studied the scriptures for a long time is to, I, I'm interested in, yeah, what, what might this mean? What is a multiplicity of possibilities and what do each of them teach us and how... Uh, for a long time, I've been interested in Judas, for example, right? And right. what's going on and what are possibilities? Um, so some of the things were ideas that I've had for a long time. There's a passage where uh, Jesus says his woe, woe to the different Galilean towns, right? And, uh, and contrast them with Phoenician cities that would have accepted him. Mm-hmm. And having grown up Jewish Mormon, <laughs> I always have been a little sensitive about, that, you know, yeah. the sense that the Jews were the only people who would have rejected yes. Jesus. And years ago, I think as a teenager, I, I decided that the Jews may have been the only people who would have rejected Jesus. They're also the only people who would have remembered him. Oh, wow. That any other nation, he would have been. Pro- so I have that, right? I there stuck it in this yeah. book, yeah. this insight that, you know. Nice. So, yeah, in some sense, they're things from my personal life that go way back. In other times, they're, they're borrowed insights from a wide variety of, of scholars and perspectives. And, and you mentioned Judas as well. Um, there, you make a pretty big expansion on, on Judas. There's a nightmare, a recurring nightmare, and also interactions that he has with an angel. Um, I was just curious about where that came from. I, I didn't see any seeds within the gospel narratives themselves. That was probably yeah. the, the, the most original... Uh, element of the story yeah. that you brought in. So, one of the things I've played with in my understanding for Judas for a long time, and that is one of my older insights, is what if, and we're at spoiler, <laughs> I, I can't believe I'm announcing a spoiler for something that retails the most old. Yeah. Uh, spoiler about the New here Testament. You go. Spoiler, spoiler about my expansion. I've been interested in, um, look, what if what if Judas was trying to force God's hand? Yeah, there's um, that whole... And so, what if... There are theories about there yeah, there's several, Gospels it, about that. Yeah, there's, that. there's some... Um, certainly in Jesus' fiction, which you talked about yeah. at the beginning as a yeah. genre, it's very common uh, to treat Judas as a political zealot yeah. who sees Ju- Jesus as, well, you've got that poor thing, you know, the because of the ointment could have been sold. Yeah, You have a lot of people who say he's sort of this... Conscience of social justice, and when when Jesus betrays that, he betrays Jesus, yeah. right? Um, I didn't go that direction, partly because I don't see a division in the ancient world between religious and political. Yeah. So to have this contemporary political Judas just seems out of place for me. Yeah. 
I ended up instead with a very apocalyptic Judas who sees yeah. fundamental problems with a fallen world and fully expects Jesus to be the one who... Well, he speaks with an angel who tells yeah. him, like, look, we're... And it's taken off of something Jesus himself said, right? Or at least in the book of Revelation where these angels are just waiting. Hey, we're just waiting for the word. Yeah. Well, you want this uh, world to end. We're, we, we're waiting to do it. We just are waiting on the word. The here. gospel seed of that is when Jesus is captured, he says in the gospels, couldn't I call down a legion yeah. of angels now? Yeah. Right? Don't you, or don't you know that I yeah. could? Yeah. Um, so I took that saying to be expanded as this, yeah, you know, this apocalyptic hope that well, Judas has. How about has. the nightmare, though? How about his sister? He so that's the thing. So, so I was interested in apocalyptical thought in Judas. Um, so part of what I wanted to do is I wanted to make a Judas you could sympathize with, who sees problems with the world, wants them fixed. On the other hand, I wanted Judas who. This is a big. He's wrong, right? When yeah. he betrays Jesus, it's a bad thing. And what I have with him is there's a forcing of God that is almost violent in the way done with a kiss too, right? Judas like, does it right, and yeah. So, so I'm sort of paralleling that to this thing with the sister. Um, and so the backstory with Judas is he's from Jerusalem. He's a southerner. The others are northerners. Within my book. Um, you know, so grew up in the slums, and his his sister's been raped, and he doesn't know who did it. Um, and of course, rape is bad enough today. Rape in that sort of culture, I imagine, would have been significantly worse. Yeah, it had even more societal um, repercussions. Yeah, that I mean, were in a way, really terrible look, and unjust. People, the way to the way to prevent rape then was to have this sense that female rape is a sense of male honor. It's that mess with my sister and I'll kill you culture yeah, yeah. that really protected women uh, in a more chaotic, lawless environment. But that also meant that if if there's something, it's harder for the whole family, for women specifically. There's a huge cost. Right. There's also like, yeah, so and the woman's trauma. the woman's value is then depleted because she has been violated. That's yeah. another thing. So men yeah. and the whole family, of the whole family, yeah. And yeah. so it's very complicated. Anyway, Judas is traumatized by this, doesn't know, and he doesn't blame any certain things. Says this is an example of how fallen the world is yeah. and why it needs salvation. Something like this would happen in his then family. Then he'll yeah. yeah. I also, in the second book, the second book has that 12 tribes of Israel. Each chapter corresponds, in a sense, to a tribe of Israel. I've got sort of layered imagery from Jacob's blessings of his oh, son. Oh, interesting. I, those um, are things I didn't see. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot of the, a lot of the Old Testament interplay you would never notice. Uh, I do have sometimes a reader call me and say, I was reading the Old Testament, and I found this story, and it's in. Yeah. <laughs> suddenly, something makes sense because it's a. It's not necessarily Old Testament greatest hits all the time. Right? Yeah, right, right. Uh, so but no, Noah's in Ark a way, does not make an appearance. Uh, the sister of Judas plays the Dinah role oh, okay. in that second book. Yeah, okay. And so then, yeah, yeah. so there's a variety of scriptural things. I'm not saying this is okay. what happened, but right. there's these. Okay. I am. I am working with different elements of Old and New Testament. Yeah that I weave together to make this sort of new speculative Judas story. Your descriptions of some of the parables are also particularly memorable to me. Um, so I'm, I want to have you read a short excerpt. Right. You managed to find some some pretty funny moments here in, in Jesus' teachings that I hadn't thought of before. So uh, right there. Okay, so this is... Um uh, he's, before he's, the feeding of the multitude? Before he right? feeds the multitude, he's, okay. he's teaching them and he's you know, yeah. telling them. Yeah. When his listeners seem to be getting tired, Jesus tells funny stories. Everybody laughs at the way he staggers around as if he had a giant plank sticking out of his eye while he pretends to pluck out a grain of sand that's gotten in Nathaniel's. When the audience seems to be getting too boisterous, 
Jesus tells unsettling stories about men who stumble on their way to heaven and then cut off their feet so they can learn to walk. Yeah, so rather than... I like how you incorporated a description of, of some of the parables. Mm-hmm. Some of them you expand on, uh, and you have Jesus actually saying them. But here you've taken a couple of them and just put them together, but shown that it's possible in those circumstances that, that you could have been doing a number of things. He's teaching the same lesson, like with yeah. the, the the moat and the beam and hypocrisy or and that, you know. But you, you show that this could be a funny moment for Jesus. You yeah. find humor well, here. Well, the, the moat in the beam has become so embedded, even beyond Christianity, in the English language yeah. that we forget, I mean, a beam. Yeah. He's not saying, this is not a big thing a stuck in your eye. This is something, this is like larger than an eye in your <laughs> eye. I mean, yeah. this is, uh, I read someone who <laughs> described Jesus' language as gigantesque. Yeah. These impossibly huge images. Um and there's almost no way that isn't funny, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and a, a speck of dust, a, what do we call it? So it's a, a moat. A we moat, don't, yeah. Moat, we only yeah. use that. That word has survived entirely <laughs> in the context of this. What it means is a tiny speck of something. Yeah. Um, sort of like a sliver, even. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I just see that it's such a juxtaposition that if you weren't aware of it, of course it's funny. Yeah. It's it's preposterous. It's yeah. huge. And it absolutely captures attention. And you think about how could Jesus have taught large crowds? I mean, you don't have any technologies of magnifying. These right. are, there's constraints of... Well, and the other thing is you don't... Uh, contemporary American culture has pretty pretty calm... I was just watching a church video uh, the other day, and the mob scene is laughable. In that mo- Contemporary Mormons cannot act like a mob. There are plenty of countries in this world where getting on a bus is a more boisterous and violent atmosphere than a mob scene in our movies. Now. But Jesus comes from presumably a culture where crowds are a little more restive and people yeah. are doing things. And, you know, anyone who's been to the to the Middle East today can see if you're trying to capture attention, you need you yeah. need that sense of surprise. Big, and yeah. so, yeah, I'm trying to, to, to give people a fresh sense of what that probably actually was like. Yeah, and you also just mentioned just a second ago your attention to the the just practical realities of the traveling ministry like the one Jesus was was putting on. So he's got these people following him around and and you mentioned, you know, there's this one part where you talk about wherever Jesus and his followers go, it, it turns dirty and ugly. It reminded me of sort of like a after I concerts over and everybody leaves and there's all this garbage <laughs> everywhere and the grass is all trampled down and stuff so you pay a lot of attention to those types of circumstances right and, yeah. and and I think that it's a strong part of the narrative that I hadn't considered before these practical considerations of that type of a ministry yeah well, I think some of the stories in the gospels are fairly difficult to understand without the the embodied mundane realities and how intense they were example Jesus' mother and brothers come to take him away, and they want him to stop. Right? Why do they do that? Well, if you think about lots of people in a densely, you know, <laughs> I don't know, if you if you have the, these crowds that actually press, right? These are not people who stand in line. Line is pr- almost certainly not a part of this culture. Yeah. So you have these people pressing. A press of the crowd is very real. And many of them have infectious diseases. Yeah. And open wounds, and who yeah. knows what. There's a very clear and present danger to Jesus uh, 
in this moment, right? Yeah. Um, I don't think you can understand the family concern if you aren't able to visualize that. And we live in a much more orderly culture, uh, sanitized society. We don't get that. Another almost today, people might get the sense that that his family was just embarrassed about some stuff he was saying. Because maybe yeah. for us today, you got a relative who's out there embarrassing you. Or something. Sure. So that's kind of. But you, yeah. you draw attention to these other considerations that yeah. that, that would have affected their situation. I mean, there's certainly things that would have been there. And there, if you want a real visual image of what's going on, and again, I, I think the original listeners, uh, the the research I've seen suggests that uh, urban parts of the Roman Empire were probably more densely populated than Indian cities today, mm. but wow. without being able to build as high. Yeah, I mean very tightly packed. So if people knew that, these were people where the original hearers of the gospel knew what the press of the crowd meant. Yeah. We don't. We really have no... Well, a concert is the closest to it I can Um, think of where you're mushed into a venue, like these outdoor concerts where you're right up against the stage and everybody's pushing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like I say, when you leave, it's filthy. There's shoes lying around (laughs) and, you know... (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, you've got that. Another, you'd asked about research. <laughs> One thing I did spent a lot of time researching sometimes is what can you see from a given? If you're in Capernaum looking out, what can you see? Yeah. Right? How far do you have to go to get somewhere? How long does it take to walk from point A to point B? Many of the locations, they're actually quite close, right? Yeah. A couple hours, maybe yeah. overnight trip. On the other hand, there's a, there's one story that was very difficult for me to understand. You have one story, almost everything in Galilee, then the journey down to Jerusalem, you have a single pericope yeah. that happens in the coast of Tyre and Sidon, right. which is Clear quite a ways away, right? And yeah. so I remember that part yeah. of your narration. But I think that yeah. that physical reality made me stop and think about that story again, where we miss. I, to us, it's all place names. Yep. Right. Yeah. It's a board monopoly board or yeah. something here. Oh, it's all just right in a row. Um, all right. So there's another. Uh, let's see. There's another excerpt here. Um, what you did with the story of the rich young ruler and Jesus. The rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, follow the commandments. And he says, oh, that's great. I do that. And he says, well, all right, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the rich young ruler leaves. Mm-hmm. And um, Jesus says, you know, it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, you expand on that. The, you you enter into the the young rich young ruler's thoughts and sort of he's dwelling on his future posterity and some of the considerations that he has to take. If I sell everything, how will I provide for a family? How will I how yeah. will I have inheritance for my posterity? So you 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 make him a much more sympathetic figure, and he still goes away. Um, so I'd like you to read the exchange that uh, that Jesus has with the. Apostles after the rich young ruler leaves. All right, so so we have a moment just before that where um, where the apostles are remembering their own callings because these are men who did leave yeah. other considerations. And he didn't. And he didn't. Yeah. Uh, why isn't he coming, asks Andrew. Didn't he feel that? He must have, says Jesus, but it's hard for a man with so many riches to join the kingdom of God. It's not that hard, says Matthew, who regrets nothing. Jesus glances at him. You knew that money didn't really belong to you, so you didn't belong to it either. But it's hard for a man who trusts his wealth to come into the kingdom of God, harder than it is for a camel to pass through an opening the size of a needle's eye. The apostles stare. 
Thomas looks for a puzzle in Jesus' words, imagines the rich young man spending the rest of his life plucking out a camel's hairs and passing them through a needle (laughs) one at a time. The futility of the image exhausts him. Is there any way then for a man like him to be saved, Thomas asks. Jesus looks around at, at all the twelve. How many things have you seen God do that men can't? With God, all things are possible. There will be joy yet in heaven over him. Peter knows he shouldn't be bothered by this, but he is. He thinks of his wife and his mother-in-law, thinks of their faith and sacrifice. Why should a rich man with no family be excused for refusing to do something a poor fisherman has done? Peter knows he shouldn't be bothered, but he can't stop thinking about a story the prophet Nathan once told King David. A story about a rich man who spared sheep that were only things to him, and killed a poor man's only lamb instead, a lamb that was all the love and duty in the world to that man. We've left everything to follow you, says Peter, but he stops before he can give voice to his complaint. A peaceful heart heals the body, he reminds himself, but envy rots the bones. A breeze comes down off the hills toward the river, giving momentary relief from the lowland heat. Far ahead, Peter can almost see what must be Jericho's city wall. Jesus turns to Andrew. How many homes have you stayed in since I called you to follow me? Andrew thinks, a few dozen at least. And how many women cooked for you and cleaned up after you like you were their own sons? asks Jesus. Andrew smiles wide. How many people have you met who were like brothers and sisters to you, asked Jesus. How many houses would you be as glad to see again as your own home? How many fields do you love now as much as if you'd spent your whole life caring for them? Peter thinks not just of the villages, but of hills where he's spent the night and risen with the sun in the morning. He thinks of drinking from the dew on the wild grass, of digging up plants with satiating bulbs. All of Galilee is his now. Galilee is his in a way no rich man will ever know. Whoever leaves a house or land or loved ones for me and my gospel is given hundreds of homes and lands and loved ones in this life. Your reward is coming in this world already, says Jesus. So there's no need to be jealous of the lost who are brought back to life in the world to come. That's James Goldberg. He's reading a sec, uh, selection from his book, The Five Books of Jesus. And I mentioned this before, but I, I'm interested in your thoughts on it. You wrote in the present tense. Uh, so Jesus says, the apostle says. Uh, did you make that decision early on? And, I'm, and I wonder why you did. Yeah. Um, I must have made it early on because early on I'm doing it, right? Uh <laughs> In a way, the so in English, I don't know if this is true of other languages, but the past tense is the dominant tense for, uh, say, a novel. Yeah. Um, because the past tense is the is the tense of of truth <laughs> and right. record. It These happened. are it happened, right? Uh, you can think you're telling an anecdote. So I'm I'm driving home today, and this guy just whips around the corner, and he hits me. And and if someone expresses skepticism, oh really? It happened. Yes, we switch to the past tense. Yeah. The present tense is a tense of story, right? Uh, it's a very oral tense, I think. That, that, that's the impression I got. And so, 
I told you earlier, I'm not concerned about absolute accuracy and chronology, which is quite frankly unrecoverable <laughs> with the yeah. tools that we have uh, within this world in this life. You can approximate it, but um, the, you know, yeah, even then, yeah, no I mean, I'm interested in w- what are the gospels saying as a story and the power of story, and so I chose that story tense, that very oral tense. In a way, I come from playwriting. If you wanted to, you could think of the whole book as a monologue of me telling you the story of Jesus. Um, you know, uh, and yeah, but I think the present tense in a way gives it an almost outside of time feel, right? This is not something that happened once. This is a story that is still in some sense happening. And so I like that all, all, almost outside of time, very oral feel to the present tense. Yeah, it it did. It felt very live uh, reading it in that. I I thought it was I thought it was a really good narrative decision. Um, there's a a, sec- a little selection I want you to read that's about halfway through the book, and this this is a, a part where it starts to set up some some foreboding here. Um, this is when Jesus is uh, speaking to the seventy, and it, it it seemed like the the apostles are the ones who could have struck on the idea of the seventy. Did I, did I gather that right? That you sort of set up yeah. the apostles. Like, let's, <laughs> let's ring. Let's get some people in here. Yeah, in in my telling, and I I don't know that there's any scriptural ground for it, but I think it's plausible. Um, it's two of the apostles specifically. Jesus has sent the others out on on missions, as I remember, and left mm-hmm. to Magdala has become sort of a temporary base, and he leaves them there. And it's their task is to take care of the people who were there being fed, right? At, right. You had these people fed, had this experience with Jesus. How do you continue to organize it? And so I think it's Matthew and Thomas, maybe. I, I don't remember. I, I don't recall well. either who their innovation is to set up these representatives from groups. And they, they divide it and, and then they, they have these leaders. And Jesus sort of endorses what they've done. And then, yeah, the calling of the 70 is based on the initial uh, initial innovation from apostles. I. I think in stories, we tend to take the main character and give them all the innovations because we can keep, we can track them, right? Yeah. So uh, Latter-day Saint history is this way. We use Joseph Smith as the tracking for he's the mythical character, so we attach everything we want to teach to Joseph Smith. Yeah, work in the glory sort of does that, That's, right? You've got the Steed yeah. family, but Joseph Smith in some of the volumes is like this. Yeah, I think in in most cases, the way I understand revelation, uh, how does a revelatory community work? I think functional revelatory communities are not all the leader sends the revelation down. A lot of times right. the innovation is there within somebody's calling and stewardship. And we've seen that happen. And I mean, yeah. Harold B. Lee did that with the Absolutely. welfare program. Absolutely. Yeah. Again and again in our church, the revelation happens closer to the ground. The The role of the leader then is to show which things should be applied more broadly. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I have Jesus use that model because I think it's a good model. And I think it's entirely plausible yeah. that within... Jesus movement, not every idea came initially from Jesus. And you do a good job of introducing uh, some tension to the narrative here when Jesus is sending them out. He's he's sort of, (laughs) Jesus is almost saying, sending them out, thinking to himself, if only they knew, like, you know, what's coming. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you do have this organizational dilemma where if you give the long version, Jesus has three years. If you give shorter versions... It might not be there. Yeah. Whatever it was, Jesus did not live long, and the establishing an organization is very difficult work. 
And so, yeah, it's it's got to be an overwhelming training burden yeah. <laughs> uh, on him, right? Uh, so, yeah, we've got a passage here about that. Before Jesus sends out the 70, he gives them a warning. They'll be like sheep among wolves. They all nod gravely, embrace themselves against dangers they vaguely imagine, but almost none of them really understand, because almost none of them have spent time enough alone out in the hills as Jesus has to see how wolves hunt. So they imagine sharp teeth, but don't think about wolves' intelligence and patience. They imagine bristled hair and aggressive growls, but don't realize that wolves hunt mostly by testing their prey for signs of fear and weakness, that wolves are most likely to bite animals only when they panic and run. The 70 go out to preach. Where they're successful, the 12 follow to heal. Since they're met with few obvious signs of hostility, they forget all about wolves. But their enemies have not forgotten anything. Jesus' critics have simply chosen to save the next confrontation for the right place and time. Yeah, and the, the section ends there. In, so you're sort of setting up what's going to happen later. And you mentioned this before. Of there are people that have become familiar with Jesus or that hear about Jesus, and then and they're sort of causing trouble in the different communities that yeah. Jesus is going to. So you're setting up eventually what will become the movement to have Jesus arrested mm-hmm. and, and put on trial, right? Um, so throughout the five books, or throughout the, I would say the, Throughout the first three books, Jesus' voice is pretty constant, pretty pretty present in the narrative. But as we get toward the crucifixion and after the crucifixion, it seemed to me, you know, I don't want to give too much away, so if you if if you don't want to, you know, fast forward through this part or whatever, but but <laughs> Jesus, spo- second spoiler. Yeah, another spoiler. Right? I know, how do you do that <laughs> in the gospels? I don't know. But uh but Jesus' voice sort of goes away after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then the narrative turns fully to the voice of the of the women and the apostles. Yep. Um, and I, I wondered about that narrative decision to have, because in the New Testament you have scenes where Jesus meets with them. Like he, you know, he goes out and yep. calls them on the water and they come in and he's got fish cooked up or he. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Love that scene. And Jesus, uh, uh, Peter it, jumping. Don't I don't it, use it, but I love it. it Peter jumping shirtless yes. into the water. That's why I'm like, how did, to, uh, how did, it's how did James not um, put that in there? All right, so a couple of things. First, we do have Jesus' voice really never his point of view. I I am an arrogant, arrogant man, but I, I <laughs> simply cannot pre, you know, presume to write in the perspective of Jesus. So we have people close to yeah, him you never do. reporting, but we're never getting his attitudes, emotions, yeah. except in the sense that other people see things and right. infer. Infer them, yeah. Um, I didn't notice that, but yeah, you really do surgically move around Jesus yeah. that way. So oh. we're around Jesus never, again, he's, words are present, huh. actions are present, point of view, I never go there. Yeah. Um, because how could you? I, People have done. Norman Mailer did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I, I again, I, I'm an arrogant, arrogant man. Jesus but I'm no Christ Norman superstar. Mailer. I there think you go. has a little bit. Of uh, so yeah, what happens though? There, there definitely is a shift because we're locked in the point of view of people around Jesus. After Gethsemane, Jesus is separated. Right, he's. He's on trial, he's being persecuted, and all the points of view are are at a greater distance from him. Yeah. And so we're not close. Jesus stops talking, really. In in the Gospels, Mm -hmm. there's a limited number of sayings 
after Gethsemane, but there's not a ton, yeah. right? And I, I don't believe I use all of them. I'm mm-hmm. certain I don't use all yeah. of them. Uh, and so so we've got that distance. Part of what's interesting to me in that moment is it's got to feel to the to the apostles and other disciples that the ground is just falling out yeah. from under them. And I, I really wanted to give that section that falling feeling and then how do they step again and actively make meaning. Because I think before... I don't want Jesus' resurrection being the only thing that makes meaning for them. Right? I, I want them to be ready for the resurrection in a sense. They don't know it's going to happen. It totally surprises them. But they have this crisis and regrouping that happens quickly in those three days so that when the good news comes, it means something. Now, the I, I mentioned earlier that I borrow heavily from the three synoptic gospels and a little bit from John. The the backbone of the book is from the Gospel of Mark. You notice, for example, that I don't start with the infancy narratives. I start where Mark does with John the Baptist. Um, And the earliest manuscripts of Mark don't give us resurrection stories beyond the open tomb and that awe of the uh, open and empty tomb. The awe of the empty tomb in the earliest manuscripts of Mark was that high point, right? The sense of wonder that Jesus isn't there. We thought this was over, right? We, or we worried this was over. And then he was he was gone. Jesus wasn't there. He's There's an implicit rising, but that's it. And so I sort of follow that, and we don't, we don't go that much. For instance, I do allude to a discussion that the Gospel of John has between... Mary Magdalene and Jesus, but I don't show it. Right. Right? It's hers, yeah, she, it's not she ours. she refers to it. Uh, she refers she to it. I spoke with him, yeah. But we do have this distance, maybe along with Thomas, right, where where yeah, all the appearances are, so to speak, off screen. Yeah. Um, so that at that final moment, um, we're in a Christian community that believes in the resurrection, but it hasn't been Jesus who came. We're, in a way, the story at the end of the book is about because I'm telling the stories of the Gospels rather than the stories of Jesus, the story at the end is the story of the of nascent the Christian community. Right. Right. So what is this community that is rising after Jesus is dead? And so he does, yeah, visually recede a little bit, even though, of course, he's still important. They're, yeah. Everything they're thinking about at the end is Jesus, but but they're wrestling. I didn't deal with the stories the Gospels give us where he's... He's there directly. Well, before we go, um, I'll add a personal note that I, I really enjoyed reading the five books of Jesus. I, I think it's a fantastic book, and, and I just strongly recommend it. It's, it. As you mentioned, someone else had told you, it made me want to go back to the Gospels and see what I could see there again. It, it's To me, it's an opportunity to give us a, a new pair of eyes again mm-hmm. with, with something that we've become famil- so familiar with. Um, so, so I really appreciate. It. I think you did a uh, fantastic work Thank here. You. Yeah, I think a lot of Mormon devotional literature is is sort of light and 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 it, it lacks the dark and the shadows and some of the some of the difficulties. To me, this is like the perfect book to sit down with on a Sunday afternoon after church and and read for for a little while. It's like a perfect yeah. devotional. Piece. Yeah, I like that. I, uh, yeah, I hope it is. I hope it's a good book to launch you back into the scriptures. I, I think and I hope it's a very good book to discuss yeah. with other people and play with. 
look, there's lots of ideas in here. When when giving sort of a frame that hints at an interpretation of the parable, I usually picked the one you haven't heard yet, yeah. just to yeah. to throw out more. And I think, yeah, sometimes sometimes the point of our devotional literature ends up to be say. We move toward, ah, this is true. Mm-hmm. Right? Ah, this is good. God is there. And there's a time when you need that. Yeah. There are other times when the best devotional literature is the beginning of the discipleship question, right? Yeah. What does this mean? Where do we go? Well, one thing I'll say, I guess our stereotype of what devotional literature would be, would be the angel sweeps in at the ending, Greek theater style, you know, day oh, or six yeah, months. Right? Yeah. But the angel comes at the end and everything's all right. The scriptures... If you if you read say the Book of Mormon closely, the angel is almost always an inciting incident, where the angel the first chapter Lehi has a vision, uh-huh. and the angelic God touching your life complicates it. Yeah, yeah. Rather than resolving it, almost always in the scriptures. Yeah. And I think this book is in maybe a smaller tradition in in contemporary Mormon writing, but but one it's not alone there in saying how. Yeah, t- taking that weight of when God touches you, like how does it complicate it? What, where do you go moving forward? So it's that other side of the coin. Yeah. So you've written a book that provides that role. Are there other books that you've read that kind of fill that have filled that role for you that people might be interested yeah, to read? Yeah, there's tons. Um, one that's a young adult novel written for the national market that uh, has LDS characters. It's called Slumming by Kristen Randall. And I would highly recommend this because the the premise at the beginning is you have these three Mormon youth who say, you know what, we're going to each pick someone and help them. And as a reader, you sort of know that the text indicates to you they're coming into this with a fairly superior attitude about, oh, we're so good (laughs) and we're going to bless people. And, And you know these people need a humbling, right? And so you take these three very different stories of how that experience turns out. And there's, as an adult reader still, really pressing questions about, yeah, what is this journey of reaching out toward others and how does it turn out and where does it go and what's right and what's wrong? I really wish I'd read that book as a teenager. It would have been great uh, to weigh those questions. There's some pretty heavy theological questions she raises in there. I'd absolutely recommend uh, slumming for that. Cool. Um, yeah. Any other projects that you're working on right now? Are you working on any new books or plays, or what have you got going on? Yeah, well, for writing, I'm working on a Kickstarter. So I've got the first two volumes of a graphic novel series, actually. That's <laughs> Are you collaborating with somebody? <laughs> collaborating with an artist, and um, it's an alternate world where the Ottoman Empire never fell. And they're using their old succession system where... You have one brother who's going to win. It's an election rather than warfare. They used to fight for the succession, and the one brother would succeed, and the other brothers would be executed because you have a spare brother whenever there's discontent. It's a focal point, right? So we have a 21st century election where the losers must die. Uh, (laughs) And so it's a way for me to sort of explore politics in general, but then very specific things about what, what might Muslim politics look like in a world where you don't have the same post-colonial baggage uh-huh. and other things. So it's a really, really fun story, hoping to raise money to continue to get the art done for that. Um, because it's not 
you know, mm-hmm. not sort of mainstream marketable, but but yeah. interesting. So that's a big thing. Yeah, working on a short story collection. Um, just got a job working, uh, doing writing for the church history website, history.lds.org, and I'm very right excited to see what I can do. It's sort of a lone MFA and a, and a bunch yeah. of history degree people. Yeah. Uh, how do we tell everyday stories from church history? So, yeah. Wow. That's Well, congratulations on the new job and keep working on, on the projects. I love the five books of Jesus. Again, it's James Goldberg. Uh, he also uh, teaches here at Brigham Young University. And I appreciate you stopping by and, and spending some time with me today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.